Take your Bibles and turn once again back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Back on the 1st of January, we remembered the anniversary of the first time that the words of what we know as Amazing Grace were ever heard. John Newton served in a church called Olney, and uh, it was a small community of about 2,000 people, and uh, what he uh, did was that uh, he would oftentimes uh, preach sermons, and he and his friend, a man by the name of William Cooper, would come up with poetry to go along with the sermons. Uh, in uh, that day, January 1st of 1773, uh, you had John Newton who preached a sermon uh, called Faith's Review and Expectation. That's what Amazing Grace was normally known as, but what he did is he looked at the life of uh, David, and he looked at his own life in First Chronicles chapter 17, and went through and just saw how God, in looking at faith in the past, what God had done to protect him from himself, the destruction that he uh, tried to do to himself as far as being a sailor and everything else that he was, but God in his mercy extended uh, grace to him and uh, allowed him to be saved, that presently he was doing wonderful things in his life that he never could imagine. And then, as it says, faith's expectation that God has great things to have happen yet in the future. And that was a sermon given on January 1st of 1773. Now, we mentioned William Cooper. William Cooper is uh, probably one of the greatest poets of his time period uh, as far as writing poetry. In fact, if you uh, take any sort of English literature classes and the like, they will mention William Cooper because his poetry was uh, of a a style and a manner that was uh, quite incredible. But Cooper was a young man uh, and then a middle-aged man who was uh, uh, constantly faced with depression and discouragement. In fact, earlier on in his life, he'd been a lawyer or training to be a lawyer and ended up being institutionalized for a while until he came and met Christ. Uh, He'd had trouble with uh, his mind being what we would say stable, and, and then he found Christ. He lived there and only, in fact, he was next door neighbors with John Newton. They would spend afternoons uh, working in the garden there on the different things and talking and discussing different things about Christ. They would come up with tunes for services and uh, eventually what happened in all of that, uh, several years uh, uh, of them being together, eventually there was a hymn book known as the Only Hymns, which we then became kind of a standard hymn book for many English churches uh, for years, uh, the hymns that were found in that Only Hymn book. I say all of that because on January 1st of 1773, that sermon was preached, Faith's Review and Expectation. The words, the amazing grace there is part of what John Newton penned as far as uh, his song or his uh, poetry for people to remember. But it was not a good day for William Cooper. William Cooper had been recently engaged uh, and uh, was looking to be married and, and all of this, but he could sense in his own soul things were not going right. 
whether physically or what was going on, things were not going well for him. In fact, he went out uh, after that message and kind of wandered around in his garden and uh, really became discouraged. But in the midst of his discouragement, he suddenly penned certain words, went back to his house and began to write these words down. In fact, it became one of the most well-known pieces uh, that William Cooper wrote, and it was just simply this. It was a poem called Light Shining Out of the Darkness. And here's the lines. It says this, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. You think after having a message like what John Newton preached, a piece of poetry that John Newton had, and then this statement of faith and God's working behind the scenes in his providence, that everything would go well for William Cooper. But on January 2nd, John Newton got a frantic message to come over to the house of William Cooper, and there he found William Cooper in a catatonic state, not communicating with anybody. In fact, just sitting there and staring. And for the rest of his life, William Cooper was a man who had to be led around uh, by others and moved from place to place. He never went to church again never wrote any poetry, never composed a prayer as far as anybody knows, uh, as far as the, the ones that were around him. And you say that's kind of a tragedy. Because you have a day where faith is proclaimed and how great God is and how faithful He is, and then the next day you have someone who's failed. Now, whether it was physical or mental or whatever may have happened to him, it does happen on a regular basis that people have moments where they are close to God and seeing His faithfulness and rejoicing, and then moments later they are acting as if God's promises mean nothing, as if they don't even exist, that if God, that if God doesn't even exist. This passage that we have in Genesis chapter 12 is one of those passages. Because what you had, and we have to go back, it's been almost a month and a half since we've been working through this book of Genesis. But in Genesis chapter 12, at the beginning of this, you have an incredible promise that is going to work its way through the rest of the Bible. It's God's plan for the whole of Scripture given in Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham and makes him a promise that he does not have to make. There's nothing great about Abraham. In fact, what we know about Abraham before uh, he was uh, right with God, he was a worshiper of false gods. We know this. It describes this. Uh, Joshua, uh, in his commentary on Abraham's life, describes him as an idol worshiper. 
So it's not that Abraham was some noble individual. No, he was a person who worshiped false gods, but God came to him and his graciousness promised him certain things. You find this in verse number one. He says to Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And then here's this blessing. I will make of thee a great nation and bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in, thy, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Incredible statement that God is going to give him a line out of his family and that he would be a blessing and that he would have his fame go throughout the whole of the earth. His name would be great. There is this hint at the end of verse number two that there is the fact that Abram's to be a blessing to others. But even in the midst of this, those that are around him and bless him will be blessed. Those that curse him will be cursed. And he will ultimately be the one through whom all the families of the earth be blessed. Now that's, Abraham didn't understand this. This is a promise of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.8 tells us that. But you look at Abraham, and Abraham has promised things, incredible things, beyond imagination, And as you look through the stories of Genesis 12 to Genesis 25, which are all the stories of Abraham, uh, there's about eight, nine stories that are there. All of the stories that could have been chosen are probably not the stories we would have chosen. I mean, you've got almost 100 years of life between Genesis 12 and Genesis 25, and there's only certain stories picked out. I mean, think about this. If you were to live 100 years, there's a lot of stories you could talk about. But when it came to the Holy Spirit and in choosing the stories, the stories that we find have an emphasis. And it's this, oftentimes, that God is protecting the promise that he has made. We might say this, that God is being faithful He's going to be faithful eventually in making sure that the land that he promised to Abraham would be given to his descendants. God's faithful to that. And you have several times where God protects the land. But there's the special conflict throughout the life of Abraham is this, that Abraham doesn't have any offspring I mean, God promises, you're going to have children, and your name's going to be great, and you're going to be a blessing, and your children's children are going to be blessings. All of these things are made statements, and Abraham throughout is thinking, "Mm." I mean, Genesis chapter 15 is going to be a crisis point where he actually goes and questions God on this. You keep telling me these things, and I don't see it. But all of the stories that you have about Abraham is God being faithful and protecting Abraham so that those promises come true. Because you go, why? Because sometimes his servants are faithless. Even the best of God's servants are ones who at times don't display faith and their faith, when they don't display their faith, they sometimes nearly get to their own destruction. 
In this story, in Genesis chapter 12, we have a situation where Abraham is supposed to be faithful to God and he is not. And if we were to get a theme for this passage, it would be simply this, that God's faithfulness must at times protect his faithless servants. Okay, God's faithfulness must at times protect his faithless servants. Stories we read it in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse number 10. You had Abraham who's been going through the land, going to different locations. He's living in different places. He's setting up altars. He's proclaiming the name of the Lord. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. He's declaring, here's a God. He's truly a God. I'm putting up a, a place to worship him he oftentimes did this right next to where the canaanites were worshiping themselves he would put up this statement that there is a god and he would declare this and he's been doing this but genesis chapter 12 and verse 10 here's the crisis point or the cause of the whole story it's this there was a famine in the land we're not told what caused the famine, whether it was due to a lack of rain or perhaps uh, some sort of disease of the crops or a war that took place. We're not told exactly what caused famine, but the fam- famines were common things, especially in ancient cultures where they had different things go on and suddenly there's not, nothing in the land. This is a place that uh, this land of Canaan was the place that God had brought him to and it was a land of promise yet as one has put it this way yet the land is a problem there's not enough for food and so what abram does is that he it says this that he goes down to egypt to sojourn there that word sojourn is an important word he wasn't looking to live there for a long period of time It's the word used to describe one who is a traveler, one who is moving from place to place, not living in places for long. This term, sojourner, is the one that eventually Hebrews use to describe Abraham as he goes and wanders from place to place. He's a sojourner. He has no permanent place. He's not looking to take up permanent residency in Egypt. But here's the question to be had. God brought him to the land that he would show him. He brought him to the land. He went from the north part of the land to the south part of the land. He's setting up sacrifices. He's setting up places to proclaim God. He's living in the land. And then all of a sudden, Abraham goes to Egypt. And you go, is there a problem with going to Egypt? The answer is, no, there's not problems with going to Egypt because God's eventually going to say to people like Jacob that it's okay for him to go down to where Joseph's at because it's going to be fine, they can live there. Or you have in the New Testament, as we looked over the Christmas season, you have God telling Joseph, go down to Egypt. But do you see that in this story here? Is there any reference to God? It sounds like what Abraham did was just look around and go, oh, well, there's a problem. There's no food here. Well, let's go to Egypt because they've got the ability to grow crops because the Nile, the river that's there, and they should have food, will go down there to live. But there's no mention of God or any reference to him. In fact, you find no reference to God in the story until you get down to verse number 17. And God forcibly brings himself into the situation. You say, was this a problem? It was. I mean, one put it this way, uh, since he receives no revelation to sojourn in Egypt, he is stepping out of the stones of God's will to find bread. 
He is not where he's supposed to be at. He is going outside of what God's intended plan for him, and that's to be in the land of promise. And so here's the cause. The famine happens. Abraham goes down to Egypt, and you have, second of all, this deception that takes place. Abram gets there and realizes the culture that he's in. He looks around and understands what's going on. And it says in verse 11, it came to pass when he came to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, they shall say, This is his wife. They shall kill me and they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake and my soul shall live because of thee. He sees his culture and having some understanding of what uh, culture was like, he realized that perhaps going into a foreign country to him, that people would see his wife as being beautiful. Now, you say, well, that's just Abraham saying that about his wife. He's being nice. He's making the statement that you're fair and beautiful. But you read the story... It's true. Because people such as the Egyptians and then the princes of Pharaoh and then Pharaoh himself acknowledge the fact that she's a beautiful woman. So it's not just a a side note that Abraham's making this up that, okay, she's a, a beautiful woman. No, it's acknowledged by people around him. But what he begins to assume is this, is that if she is, uh, well, spoken for, that she's identified as his wife, that being in a foreign culture, there will be some sort of plan to kill him off and make her, whosoever wife, wins out over Abraham. So Abraham comes up with a very simple solution. We're saying a simple solution. It makes no sense to us. He says to her, tell them that you are my sister. Now, we do know that she was his sister. Genesis chapter 20, verse 13, or 12 and 13, if you read that passage there, in another situation where Abraham's lying or being deceptive about his wife, that he is, uh, that she is uh, the daughter of his father. So it's either a half-sister or someone suggested the fact it could very well be, and this is a regular thing, that the daughter was adopted. And being adopted daughter, she would have had him as a father uh, and the like. But whatever the case is, they are related. But there's a relation that is much more tight than this uh, as far as being related uh, in those ways. They're married. Abraham suggests this, that you just say, well, I'm a sister, which is kind of true. It's not a lie. But what, we might, what, what would we say about this? This is deception. It's shading the truth. It's shading what the reality is. It's not giving all the information that needs to be out there. And he just simply says this. You say this, and I'll be safe. Now, he doesn't really say much about her situation. And the reasoning for some people are going, why would he even suggest this? Well, the thought is they go down there, they get the goods that they need, He can hold off suitors that might be trying to marry her. 
sort of like Laban. We're going to have a story eventually about a guy who takes his time about allowing someone to marry his daughter. Remember the story of Jacob? He comes along and sees the beautiful Rachel, and he's there for a month, and suddenly Laban goes, well, what, what do you want? You know, you're here. I don't want you just working for nothing. What do you want? He says, I want to marry your daughter. He goes, okay, then you can wait seven years and work really hard, and then I'll let you marry her. That may have been the thinking of Abraham. He's thinking this, well, if we go there and there's people that are interested in there, I can hold off her suitors until we get all the supplies we need and then go back to the land of promise. We can escape. This is a deception. This is not a good thing. This is not commendable. In fact, what it shows is this, is that this is a lack of what? Faith. Because you go back to the very first part of this chapter and it says that God's going to take care of him and promises him a great line and that he is going to have a great name because of his family and that through his family all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He doesn't have a family yet. And if he really does truly trust God uh, that he will do as he said, he would be okay going to Egypt. He would know that he is safe even though perhaps he stepped outside the boundary lines of what God has said and didn't talk to God, it just seems like God's not in his thoughts at this point, not in his plans. Go down to Egypt, solve the problem uh, by deception, get the food that we need, come back uh, to the place where God said, but God's not in his thoughts and his plans. He doesn't reflect on God's promises and think about what God has said. And one has put it this way, this profane, the profane scheming of this elect couple almost shipwrecks their faith pilgrimage. Uh, they nearly bring about destruction to the family, to Abraham, to Sarah. See, the story goes this way. Abraham's got his own assumption. You're beautiful. If you say you're my sister, we'll be okay. We'll be safe. He's right in assuming the fact that, yes, there are going to be people that assume that she's beautiful. Yes, there are going to be people that are interested in marrying him. The one thing he did not calculate was another possibility. And that's found in verse number 14. Uh, And you have this complication, as you might put it. You have the deception, but here's the complication to the deception. When you deceive, it doesn't usually work out the way that you were hoping. In this case, it doesn't. Verse 14, came to pass that when Abraham uh, was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, that she was very fair. The princes of uh, also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Oops. He enters into the land and he forgets about the ruler of Egypt who has absolute control of everything and can in an instant command what he wants to happen. He was thinking that he might be able in the streets and other places around him, people that are interested, hold them off. But he had forgotten about the fact that Pharaoh was a part of this plan. And the nature is, as you see it here, that Pharaoh has this woman commended to him and he brings her into his house. Say, did anything happen? I have no idea. The scripture does not indicate that anything does happen. May very well have been that they were waiting to get married in this whole process and whatever, and were working out deals with Abram uh, to work this out. 
Remember when you had an individual that we do know of that was in a uh, harem for, for a king, a woman by the name of Esther. It took 12 months before she got married. So it very well may be that Pharaoh goes, I want to marry her. Let's start working out a deal. And you go, well, what's the deal? Verse 16, he entreated Abraham well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. What he's doing is that he's paying all that he can so that Abram will give him the approval, the final okay, that it's all right to marry Sarah. This is something as you, you look at uh, what happens here when uh, Abram comes out of Egypt in verse number 2 of chapter 13. It says that Abraham was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And somebody said this, his wife, and, and the, the Hebrews, uh, when you read in uh, the Old Testament and they use adverbs and adjectives, that's unusual because the Hebrews don't like to. They just don't typically do that. And so when Abraham says that you're very beautiful, I mean, he goes out of his way to say, you are truly very, very beautiful. And somebody said this, off the beauty of his wife, you look at verse 2, Abraham becomes very, very, very wealthy. Exceptionally wealthy. Pharaoh, this king who is in charge of the world's largest power at that time, outside of the region of Babylon. He's a world power, and he would have all sorts of wealth at his disposal. He tries to buy this situation. This is a complication. I mean, even Abraham gets, at this time, camels. You say, what, were camels uh, rare? Yeah, it seems to be in that time, camels would have been like a luxury item. You know, a fancy, fancy, fancy car. They weren't as common as they are today in that culture. And so here he is giving all sorts of stuff, and he is kind of throwing up his hands. What is he going to do? Now we got Pharaoh. Now i got to figure out how to get this out. And it's at this point that God steps in. You've had the cause. You've had this uh, situation that's happened, this deception that takes on, the complication that happens. But ultimately what you have is the intervention of God. I wondered, what if God hadn't intervened? We would have never heard of Abraham, probably. We might have. But verse 17, the Lord, all of a sudden, Abraham's got all his plans, God steps in. The Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. It is interesting that there are many connections between the nation of Israel and this story. Think about this. Here God plagues whom? The Pharaoh. Eventually God's going to get Abraham released from Egypt. As the people that are reading the story initially would have been Israelites who are wandering the wilderness. They would have seen the plagues of God on Pharaoh that eventually delivered them with what? Great wealth. The nation of Israel plundered the nation of Egypt when they left. This is, you know, the nation of Israel is kind of seeing some connection between Abraham, their father, and, and the way that God had dealt with them. But God plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And so somehow Pharaoh figures this out. How he figures it out, I don't know. But we're told that he comes and accuses Abraham. 
Verse 18, Abraham, or excuse me, Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why dost thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou, She is my sister? I mean, somehow he finds out and he comes back and says, This is all your fault. It's a sad thing when the world has to come and tell those that are the representatives of God and know him that they're wrong. I've thought about this. I I wonder what Pharaoh's uh, understanding of God was like. Yes, he saw God do great and incredible things as far as the plagues in his household, but I wonder what his opinion of God was as a result of dealing with Abraham. Pharaoh accuses him of all sorts of different things, and they're all correct. And he says, verse 19, I might have taken her to my wife. Now, therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. I mean, this this is a statement, the way it's written, is that it's designed to be shameful. Abraham leaves Egypt in shame, not in glory, not with God being well represented. No, the Egyptians are happy to see him go, and they look at him and go, what, what kind of a person is that? A liar, a cheat. He's willing to give up his own wife. What kind of a person is that? And so Abram leaves Egypt. Now, for us, we would stop right there in verse 20 because that's the way chapters uh, are set up here. But remember, our chapters in Genesis are not on the basis of what 1 through 50. Uh, They're set up on the basis of these are the generations of. So this story continues on. Okay, Abram leaves in shame. He's been humiliated by his God and by the world. The world's looked at him and said, what a fraud. They say, what did Abraham do? Well, verse 1, Abram went out of Egypt, he and his wife, all that he had, and lot with him into the south. Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. But then here's verse 3. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai unto the place the altar which he had made there first and there abram did what he called on the name of the lord see what we find is abraham wanders off from this promise of god and goes and does his own thing gets himself in a situation that he can't extract himself from god has to come along and deliver him he leaves in humiliation and shame from the land of Egypt. And what is this stating? He wanders through the land and he comes back to the place where he had been before, where he was one who was proclaiming the name of God. You say, what does he do? He comes back and he gets right with God. He starts going, you are a God that truly is the one who can, can bless that you can hold to the promises that you've declared, that you'll do the things that you've said, that you will do as you promised. I believe you. I trust in you. And what I'm going to do is declare you openly. Abraham in Egypt was not declaring openly his God. He was hiding the fact of certain things that he knew, and God had to intervene in his life to rescue him. And what he's suddenly coming back, and he's simply thinking this, this is the amazing grace of God. He's faithful to me when I haven't been faithful to him. 
He has held to his promises in protecting me and keeping my life safe and keeping the possibility of having children safe as he promised. God is a good God and he starts proclaiming the name of God again. He gets back in a right relationship with his God. I mean, that's how the story ends here. That's how the, the, the way to take it is this, is that yes, he failed, but God was faithful to him and brought him back, saved him from himself and his own plans and his own plotting and brought him back to where he needed to be at. And in the end, you have Abram who's able to praise God and in the place that he's at, able to lift up God and say, there is a God who keeps his promises and is faithful and he starts doing this in the land of Canaan where he's supposed to be at. You look at a passage of Scripture like this, and you say, well, what's the the theme of this? And if we were to be accurate in this, if we were just following this through, the theme would be this, the faithfulness of God. God's faithful when His servants are faithless. He has to sometimes protect His faithless servants. God does this all the time. I mean, this is not an Old Testament thing where God has to be faithful to faithless servants. Christians can be people who sometimes act as if they don't believe there's a God or they've forgotten about Him or they're not faithful to what He says. I was thinking about this and there's a passage of Scripture that is a pretty clear passage on the faithfulness of God it's found in 1 Corinthians 10. It's, it's talking about uh, there, when you look at 1 Corinthians 10, it gives a bunch of illustrations of how God was faithful to the nation of Israel. It lists out five different stories where Israel wasn't faithful to God. They fell into sin, even though they had the revelation of God. They had the temple of God right in the center of their camp. They could see the pillar of fire uh, and the cloudy, uh, the pillar of fire by night and the cloudy pillar by day that indicated the presence of God. They could see all sorts of things about God. They knew that God was there, but yet they failed time and time again. But God was faithful to the nation of Israel throughout all, all that time. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 is talking about. And then it gets to a closing uh, application, and it's this. Verse 12 of uh, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians says this, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Because people in the Corinthian church are sitting there looking at the the nation of Israel and going, well, they're the the nation of Israel, Old Testament times, okay, they're foolish people, okay, uh, you know what, we would never do anything like that. (laughs) And Paul goes, no, wherefore, if you think that you're standing, that you're safe, Take heed lest ye fall. And then verse 13 says this, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. You think about what God does in our unfaithfulness where we think that we've got the solutions, that we're okay, much like Abraham did i got a solution here. We'll go down to Egypt and everything will be fine. It'll solve the problem. I'm okay. And goes off in his own mind thinking, I'll I'll be okay in whatever situation I enter into. And he gets himself into a situation where he destroys himself almost. So it is for us as believers. There are many occasions where we go about life and we think, you know what, I'm okay. I can solve this. I can handle this on my own. I'm all right. 
And we try and solve problems and we go different places and we think that we're going to be okay, that we're strong enough uh, to do what we need to do. We've got all the abilities to solve certain situations and we don't. And we get into situations where we're tempted to do wrong. And we think, okay, I, I can handle this. I'm strong enough to handle this temptation. The answer is no, you're not. But you know what? There's a God who's faithful in all of this as you've wandered around and done your own thing and going your own direction where God says, listen, there is a way of escape. You don't have to sin. I mean, I think about this story in relation to Abraham. Could Abraham have told the truth and been fine? Was he forced to tell a lie? No. He wasn't forced to tell a lie. He could have told the truth about his wife, but he doesn't. The way of escape for him would have just simply been this. You know what? This is my wife. And then let God protect him as he promised. That would have been the way of escape for him. I've got a great God, and we're fine. This is my wife. And been honest about it, he wasn't. His way of escape would have been this. Don't tell the lie to start off with. Trust in your God. He's faithful. He'll take care of you. So it is for us when it comes to certain situations in life. We kind of go, well, I had to sin. You don't understand the situation, how it piled up on me, and I had to, I had to sin. You know, the old uh, person back in the 50s and 60s, whatever his name was, Flip Wilson, you know, the devil made me do it. No, the devil doesn't make you do anything. It's your own decision. It's your own choice. And when it comes to sin... And doing wrong, you have a choice. God always gives you a way of escape because he's a faithful God. You don't have to sin. You should trust God and he will take care of you because he's a faithful God. And that brings us to the second level of application. Okay, God is faithful even though, and it steps in to protect his servants even when they're faithless. But here's a second level application. This could be something that you get from this passage. And it's this. The answer to the fear of man is not deception, but faith in God and his promises. The answer to the fear of man is not deception, but a faith in God and his promises. I want us to turn to, in our Bible, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Because there's a passage of Scripture there uh, where you have uh, the Lord sending out disciples to go out and just give testimony to who He is and what He's doing. And He's sending them out and giving them instructions as they go from town to town what they ought to do. And needless to say, as them going as disciples of Christ and going into certain communities, that certain communities are not going to be happy to have them there. They don't want to hear their message. And for these disciples, the temptation might be to shade what the message is or be afraid of what they're going to say or what they might do. And in Matthew chapter 10, the Lord's advice to his disciples when they get into a situation like this is this. Verse number 26. Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be hid, that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And you're going, who are you talking about? Well, man can only take your body can't take your soul 
Okay, there's a limit to what man can do. You ought to have a fear of God who can take both body and soul and do what? Cast it into hell. God's got greater power than any man does. Any person, any ruler, any authority. And so you see see this statement that the Lord continues on, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not ye not, therefore, ye are more value than many sparrows. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. I mean, the statement there is, here you're going into a world that may not like what you have to say or what you uh, do, and they're going to hate you for it. But should you be afraid of them or should you be focused on the one who can take care of all those problems? A God who's got the ability to take care of the weakest of sparrows? A God who's taken so much time to count the numbers of your head? And some of you might say, well, that didn't take long. Okay? But still, he's counted the numbers of your head. He knows them that he's taken that much care for you and that much care for the least in his creation, is he not a God to look to and go, he's going to take care of me regardless of what happens? So I'm going to confess him. I'm going to declare, this is my God. And he's capable of taking care of me. And you may take my, and you have this being the statement of martyrs as they go to the death, you may be able to take my body but I know where my soul is going because I've committed it to the trust of my Father and He's the one I truly fear. This is why I will not back down from declaring who He is. I mean, that is uh, really for us as a personal application that the answer to the fear of man is faith in God and His promises. If Abraham had just simply said, I've got a God who incredibly took me from the land of Ur, brought me to the land of uh, Canaan, has brought me here, and has visibly, or has, not visibly, has audibly spoken to me and declared certain things to me, and He's already taken care of me time and time again, why would I back down now that He can protect me? He should have focused on God's promises and been okay. A, he should have stayed where he was at. He would have never gotten himself in the really difficult situation if he stayed in the land of Canaan. But once he was in Egypt, he should have at least said, well, you know what, I'm in a difficult situation. Who can answer this? God can. I'll just put my trust in him and not fear what man can do unto me. Too often in our life, we back away from our testimony that we have in the world around us because we're afraid of what people will think or what people will say. Our problem is is that we forget the faithfulness of our God and how great He is when we begin to focus in on our fear of what's going on around us. We ought to be individuals that by our testimony, I mean, Abraham ruined his testimony with uh, the Egyptians and Pharaoh. But it doesn't have to be the same for us. We can trust in our God and lift Him up, declare who He is, and not be afraid of what people think of us and what they may say about us and what they may do to us because we know what our God's like and He's always faithful and He's promised to be faithful to us till the difficult spot. No, till the end. And then He'll bring us to stay with Him 
to a place that He's prepared for us and will be safe with Him for eternity. So why do we fear what men think when we have a God who is also, also always faithful to us? Lord, we thank You. We are people who are so taken by what goes on around us because we can see it visibly with our eyes and we can hear it uh, audibly in our ears what people may say. But Lord, help us to be faithful to You. You're God who's given us the whole of Scripture declaring who You are and what You're like and Your promises that You will never go back on because You're a God who cannot lie. You don't take back things that You say. Lord, may we have a faithful dependence on You. May we look to You, not fear men, but have a fear or an awe of You all the time and not allow the situations around us to get us to shade, be deceptive, but that we would just simply reflect and show forth the great God that we have who is always faithful. Lord, may we in this way in a world that is uh, quickly becoming more and more opposed to you and your son becoming more open in their declarations of hatred for you may we focus on you and see time and time again that you're a faithful god and that you'll be faithful to us because of your son who saved us you'll be faithful to us till the very end and then the end is not the end. It's just the beginning of a glorious eternity with you forever. So we're thankful for your faithfulness to us. May we reflect it by our actions, our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.